This is episode 15 with Duke defensive backs coach Derek Jones. Welcome to another great edition of the BCLE, the Be Contagious Leadership Experience. And today we've got Coach Derek Jones, the DB coach for Duke football. He's also the assistant special teams coordinator, but I want to bring him on. Because every time I go to a Duke football game, I see this guy jumping up and down. He's running up and down the sidelines. This guy had contagious energy. So I went ahead and I looked him up online. I went to his Twitter and Instagram, and I was astonished. He has to be the most followed assistant coach in the country. He has over 30,000 followers on Twitter. And every day, he drops amazing knowledge and quotes for his players, his daughters, his wife, for everyone else around him. But the thing about him is that he doesn't sit still in coaching football. He is also the author of the book, Always Play to Win. In fact, the hashtag is AP2W, Always Play to Win. So today, we brought him in as a guest. We sat in my office. We talked everything from family, from football, to coaching, to where our coaching industry is heading. Guys, you are going to love Coach DJ, and he will truly, truly make you better. Before we get started on today's amazing episode, I want to thank some of our sponsors. Dr. Dish Basketball provides the premier training machines in the world with next-level analytics and versatility. Their newest innovation, Skill Builder, is the first of its kind and allows coaches and players to stay connected. Through Skill Builder, you can choose or create complete workouts combining shooting, ball handling, conditioning, and agility drills. Check out drdishbasketball.com for more details and info. And from Athletic Director U, which was founded with one goal in mind, to empower the college athletics community by delivering action-oriented insight and best practices from accomplished executives, top researchers, and the industry's most influential thought leaders. Athletic Director U seeks to create a transformative learning platform for all members of its community, Visit athleticdirectoru.com and sign up for their informative daily newsletter. And now, back to the show. All right, guys, thanks for joining us on the Be Contagious Leadership Experience. We've got a great one today. We've got Coach Derek Jones, the DB coach over at Duke Football. He is here on campus. We're sitting in my office, and he's got a great, great story, a great, great message that I think a lot of people need to hear but the best part of it, he's got a brand new book out. It's hashtag AP2W, always play to win. Coach, man, thanks so much for joining us. Man, I appreciate you having me on. Now, I mean, let's just dive right in. Let's talk about your journey in coaching. I know you've been at a lot of different places. Uh, now with this book, things are just exploding even more. Go ahead, talk about your journey. Well, I uh, started my coaching career out at the University of Mississippi, which is where I played college football. And I was fortunate enough after my playing career to be a graduate assistant of Coach David Cutcliffe, our head coach here at Duke. From there, I went to Murray State University in Kentucky, um, to Middle Tennessee State, to the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma, to the University of Memphis in Memphis, Tennessee. And I've been here at Duke for the last decade. Now, you've had a lot of great success, right? I mean, it's, this is your chance to pat yourself on the back a little <laughs> bit. You've had some really great success in building the, the DB crew, there, you call them the cheetahs? Is that, is that what you call them? Yeah, that's correct. I call them the cheetahs. Now, where did that come from? Well, when I came here to Duke, um, I was trying to find a brand, um, some type of identity, because uh, Duke had not had a lot of football success. 
Um, I didn't have any guys playing in the NFL, didn't have a lot of guys that had made All-American, All-Conference. So I needed to come up with something that um, could be attractive to recruits. Uh, cheat is a coaching technique that I've always used. That means, you know, just basically chasing the hip uh, of a wide receiver. But I was always fascinated when I was young with National Geographic. And uh, nowadays, I think it's called Animal Planet as far as watching cats uh, chase animals in the wild. But it relates a lot to what we do as defensive backs because you see those cats chasing zebras, gazelles, antelopes, or whatever, and they're closing, and their eyes are always in the correct places they close. And that's very, very relevant to what we do on the football field. So I thought that uh, tying that together would be something catchy. But the real pitch to it is uh, if you learn anything about cheetahs, uh, most of the time they hunt by themselves. So when you think about DBs, you're thinking about playing one-on-one. And when they do hunt together, they will only hunt with their brothers. Um, and that group of brothers is called a coalition. So when you think about a secondary, everybody being on one accord, very, very tight-knit group, I thought the coalition would be a perfect fit for us. I love that, the coalition. Now, have you, did, now you didn't really bring that with you. That's just something that came across, and now you just started to develop it. Because I see it all over social media. You're always, look, you're always on the hunt to be part of the coalition. No, no question. And I think as uh, I said, as the leader, I have to be a cheetah myself. And uh, one of the things I have to make my guys understand is cheetahs are hunters in the wild, but cheetahs are also predators and prey. And, you know, at our position we play, you know, you're always in position to give up a big ball, uh, to give up a touchdown. A lot of times the game comes down to you. So it's a very, very pressure position. So I want those guys to understand the characteristics of that animal as opposed to us. We're not the biggest cats in the jungle or in the safari because you have lions, you have tigers in the jungle. You know, we're just kind of what we are. You know, we're the middle-sized guys on the football field. But when you think about the characteristics of a cheetah, fast, aggressive, um, elite, great change of direction skills, um, great vision, those are all the things that you need to have to be good at our position on the football field. Wow. And I can just tell, I mean, you love coaching. Love coaching. Like, what got you into coaching? Everything was said and done. Why did you want to you know, ironically, I never thought about being a coach. I uh, never wanted to be a coach. I was told by one of my coaches that I needed to be a coach. Um, like any other um, college football player, you had NFL aspirations. But I was smart enough to understand that uh, I was 5'8 in stature. And that's not what the NFL was looking for. So I always had a plan. So my real mission in life was to be a lawyer. I thought I'd play college football, take the advantage of going to school for free and um, get my college education and then transition on to the law school. But I was fortunate enough to get into an NFL camp, uh, get a CFL contract. And when I finished playing um, my first season um, up in Canada, I went back and I got a call from my agent that said the Dallas Cowboys had called and wanted to bring me out for a tryout OTA or whatever it was called. And um, Tommy Tuberville was my coach at the time. And I knew he had a relationship with a lot of the guys at the Cowboys because he had worked with some of those guys before. And I saw him in the weight room, and I went up to him. He was on the treadmill, and I told him kind of what I had going on and wanted him to make a call for me. You know how it is. Everybody wants a reference. Yep. And, you know, just being young and naive, I figured maybe if he called his friends out there, they might be like, yeah, you know, we'll give this guy a contract. <laughs> but, you know, he clearly hit the stop button on the treadmill, and he looked at me in my face, and he said, uh, DJ, you need to stop chasing that dream. He said, I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to bring you out there. They'll use you to help the veterans practice. They'll keep you out there for six weeks or so. And he said, you're going to be right back at square one. He said, uh, I think you need to be a coach. He said, I've got a graduate assistant position coming open uh, next season. I think you'll be great for it. He said, uh, you're smart. you always done a really good job of helping us recruit when we brought recruits in on um, official visits. 
He said, you are a great leader. You are a great captain. And he said, there is a shortage of minority coaches in this profession. He said, worst case scenario, you take this opportunity, get yourself back in school and work toward doing what you want to do. He said, but if you take this job, I guarantee you 10 years from now, you'll be thankful for me to it. And here I am today. Yeah. Wow, what a story. I mean, he believed in you enough to go and tell you, like, hey, listen, you got to stop chasing right. dreams. Get into coaching. And the thing, one thing I notice about you when I go to a bunch of new football games, you are high energy. You are going up and down the sideline. You're getting <laughs> your coalition ready to go. Have you always been that way, or do you have to bring it up for game day? No, that's just my personality. You know, I'm one of those people that believe um, – Passion shows when you're really, really passionate about something. And I'm passionate about doing what I do now. And I can't tell you that I would have been passionate about being a lawyer. You know, when you're young, you really think about doing something to be successful, you know, that looks good to you on paper. And I knew lawyers made good money. I knew lawyer was a good status position in society. But I didn't really know if I was passionate about being a lawyer because I had never been one. I think what Coach Tuberville saw in me is something that I've always been. I'm just on a different side of it right now. Um, you know, I wouldn't be able to play football now anyway <laughs> had I got a chance to have a successful professional football career. But oftentimes people see things in you that you don't see in yourself. And right. you don't realize when you're 20, 21 years of age how it feels to be 40 or 41 years of age. But when somebody that age has been where you are and can tell you where they see you, that's listening. And, again, I can reflect back upon that. That's one of the reasons that I'm – really, really passionate about coaching now because it's not just about, you know, running up and down the sidelines on the field. It's being able to watch my young men um, that I start recruiting about the age of 16. You're fortunate enough to get them and you're fortunate enough to coach them for four years. And now all of a sudden they are 21, 22, 23 years of age and they're transitioning into society. And to get those calls or to get those invitations to weddings or coach I'm having my first child, you know without any attention from it that you made a difference in this young man's life that there's something that you said to him that had nothing to do with his skill set on the field that he'll be able to carry into fatherhood I think the best gift that you can give to anyone are gifts that you've gotten from someone else that you've used to make a difference in your own life and coaching allows me to do that right I mean coaching we talked about earlier before we started recording this that you know we're so much more than coaches we impact so much more people what do you think how many players or student athletes and families do you think you've impacted over the course of your career? I would say an endless amount because the thing that I've come to find out, it's not even always about the guys that you coach. Oftentimes it's the guys that observe the guys that you coach. Mm -hmm. And even in today's world of social media and today's world of interacting with so many different people in order to try to get a young man to sign with you, you end up impacting a lot of families and a lot of people that you don't even sign. You know, on social media, I'm always talking to parents. I'm always talking to high school coaches. I'm always developing relationships. And I get a lot of people that come back five, six, seven years later and say, you know, coach, you really made a difference in my son's life. Or you'll have a kid that you play against and he'll come across the field and he say, coach, you know, I just want to thank you for the things that you were able to instill in me. Because oftentimes it's not the fact that they don't choose you. Sometimes you just fill up at a certain position and those kids hadn't made a decision. But those relationships last a long time. And that's why I really, really 
have incorporated social media into my coaching approach because I want to be somebody that not only affects the young men that I'm recruiting now, but I want people to be able to use the words that I put out to be able to influence guys that we may not recruit. You know, I may not be recruiting a kid in California, but if that coach was able to take one of my quotes and use it for that kid, who's to say he can't use it for a kid that's going to come along three or four years later? Now, you're huge on social media, but Twitter, now I'm on your Twitter page right now. Now, if, if you're listening to this, you got to go ahead. It's Duke Coach DJ, at Duke Coach DJ is uh, Coach DJ's Twitter handle. You've got close to 30,000 followers on Twitter. Now, I'm willing to, to bet that you have the most followers of any assistant coach in any sport in the country, in the world, I think, <laughs> for, for that matter. You know? Now, the reason why you have so many, I'm going to read a couple of these things right here. Like even the two hours ago, all right, your, your tweet was ambitious individuals should never concern themselves with the negative opinions of complacent individuals. Where do you get all these nuggets from? You know, I think it's just thinking out loud. You know, when you're in a position to influence people, whether you're a father, whether you're a husband, whether you're an uncle, whether you're a mentor, whether you're a coach, you're always thinking about something that you can say that people can relate to. You know, when you look at society, people have different levels of intelligence. And one of the things I've come to find out from being able to travel around and see a lot of the things in the country and a lot of the things in the world, you reach people in different ways. So what I try to do is to be able to think of a lot of different ways to say the same thing. And I'm going to catch a guy from an urban community with a different pickup line than I will maybe with a guy from a rural community. And that's just the way that you think about it. I'm going to catch the attention of a female a little bit different than I may catch the attention of a male. So it's never anything that I just sit down and say, I'm going to think up five or six quotes right now. It's just kind of sitting around um, doing what I do. And if something comes to my mind, um, I just try to put it on paper, and Twitter is my paper. And, well, Twitter is your paper, and now, you know, the book Always Play to Win just came out. It is a, a – first of all, this book is beautiful. I mean, it's full color. These pages are – this is high-level paper. I just want to tell you, but I've gotten a lot of <laughs> this is high-level paper. But, but it's a quick read. It's under 100 pages. Talk about the book, where it came from, and uh, kind of like your motivation behind it and, and what it's all about. Well, the book actually stemmed from my Facebook page. Um, I've been on Facebook now probably about 10 years total, um, pretty much since I got to Duke University. And again, um, it was something initially that I wanted to use in recruiting. I wanted to be able to grasp the attention of the young men. Uh, back then, there wasn't any Twitter. There wasn't any Snapchat. There wasn't any Instagram. So Twitter was my major way to be able to reach an audience. And it really came from I got to do something to make parents feel like their kid need to come play for us here at Duke. I need to be not only my voice, but I need to be a voice for David Cutcliffe in reaching the masses of people um, by using the social media tool. And it was just really thinking out loud. I mean, things that I thought people might want to hear, need to hear, things I've said before, things I've said to my daughters, the things I've said in coaching, and it really, really caught on. You know, very, very similar to Twitter, as I started to write and people started to repost and people started to comment, I started to get more requests, more requests. And it was also one of the things I figured that I could be different than most other coaches in America because it's hard to be consistent in anything, uh, very, very hard to be consistent. And I know that some of my biggest losses in life have been being inconsistent. Right. 
in whatever it is. So this was something that I could do on my own and basically dare anybody to rival it in the beginning. And then it became more of a passion for me because I started to dig a little bit more in depth to things that had nothing to do with sports. I started to talk about conversations with my daughters. I started to talk about conversations, um, you know, with my mother and father. And I started to talk about things that I've learned from a lot of different people. And the more it picked up, the more consistent I became. And I never planned to write a book. It was never a purpose of being able to put on paper, make money, anything else. I was actually told by a variety of different people they thought I needed to write a book. And a good friend of mine approached me, um, basically to the point to where she got on my nerves about it. And she asked me for permission to take my information and try to do something with it. And I granted her that permission. And about eight months later, she approached me with what they had already started. And I was just really amazed at what they were able to put together. And that's when I truly started to put my passion into it and um, agreed that I would um, enable them to do whatever they needed to do. And are you holding the finished product in your hand? What's the website? The AP2W.com. AP2W.com. Always play to win. That's where you want to pick up the book. Now, I'm on the chapter right now where you you were speaking directly to your daughters. Yes. How many daughters do you have? I have three. Three daughters. How old are they? Uh, They are ages 25, 19, and 9. Oh, you you were in the middle of it. You are still in the middle of it, of the development, which is awesome. I'm going to read this directly from the book. You know, right, right to your daughters. Don't dress to get a man's attention. Present and carry yourself in a way that captures his imagination. Imagination. I can't even speak this morning. That's something you just tell your daughters. All the time. Because as a father, you have to realize at one point in time, you are a boy. You are a young adult. And even though we're enticed as men by things short skirts, bathing suits, or whatever it may be, that's not necessarily what you want to be your wife. That's not necessarily what you're looking at to be the mother of your children. But I don't think if you tell females that from a man's perspective, they necessarily know that. Because we all live in a world of fads. We all live in a world of what's happening now. And if that's what's happening now, we're all easily influenced by people. We easily follow people when we're a certain age. If you don't have somebody to tell you that's not going to work for you long term. They may not know that. And what's popular in high school, what's popular in college, isn't what's popular long term. Right. I, 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 I wanted to really pick on that chapter because I think, you know, as coaches, we, we talk about this. We get young people at such a prime age of their lives. And the reality is many of them are not, ten, are not taught to be how to be a man or how to be a woman. Exactly. There, it's the same thing with leadership. Everyone I see, I hear all the time around, all around the country. Well, go out there and be a leader. Well, if you don't know how to lead, or no one's ever taught you, then how can you lead properly? Exactly. And you're really, and as a coach, you, you're you're a big part. Like you listen to your daughters, and then of course, you know, you you coach young men. What are some of the things that you really try and press upon these young people that come into your life? Like, what are one or two things that you really want them to learn? If, if you lead tomorrow, what is one or two things they got to take away from you? Hands down, I think the biggest thing you can teach any male is the most important thing you'll ever be in life as a husband and a father, mm. point blank. Wow. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that because that's so true. I think people forget that respect factor. They forget responsibilities. 
uh, in many ways with it. Um, with it. I, I can't. Now, how, how long have you been here? Uh, I just had my 17th anniversary. so many hours in the office how do you keep that marriage running like a fine tuning <laughs> I think you know the benefit to us is we were boyfriend and girlfriend in college and right when I entered into the coaching profession she was there by my side mm. so it's all she really knows but I think what we've been able to do is accept the fact early on in life that no matter what faults she and I both had we were willing to forgive and apologize for the rest of our lives. And I think that's very, very key when you think about marriage. It's not in your vows, but I think it's our vow because I'm going to make some mistakes. I know me. I'm a knucklehead in a lot of ways. And I'm a knucklehead at 43, so I was definitely a knucklehead at 25, 26 years of age. And uh, I explained that to her that I wasn't going to always be perfect. And I knew she wasn't going to always be perfect. But I think you have to have in your mind that no matter what he does or what she does, I am willing to forgive. And more importantly, I am willing to apologize because I think that's where a lot of people run into problems in relationships is pride, is ego. And I don't understand how in the world could you have somebody that you say you want to live the rest of your life with, you are committing yourself to, that you let ego or pride get in the way. There is no pride to the woman that... I sleep with, to the woman that I pray with, to the woman that I lay with. I mean, that's the person that's going to judge me less than anybody else. So why would I be a person that put other things or people's opinions or my selfish pride in front of that? Apologies are lost, I think, in this, in this world now. No question about it. I think apologies are lost because people are not taught to apologize. And it goes to what you and I were saying right now. It's very, very important that as leaders, as mentors, as coaches, we teach people the importance of doing the fine things in life. So many kids nowadays think the art is lost um, of chivalry. The art is lost of honesty because nobody tells them and they don't see it. You know, back in our day, you played on the playground together, a bunch, you trip a guy up, you say, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> well, nowadays, kids don't play outside no more. You know, everybody's on the computer. I mean, I go in and look at my daughter now, and she's talking to two or three people on a video game that she doesn't even know. And they're all little kids. You know, you have to sign them in, and it's safe or whatever. But it's it's not like the interactions and the communication that you learn by experience at my age. So we have to counter that because society's not going to go back to that. So as leaders, as parents, as coaches, we have to counter that. I can't blame my daughter for saying, well, you know, you don't do enough of this. It's my job to be able to say, I know she doesn't do enough of this, so I've got to be able to use my skill set, my knowledge, my wisdom to instill these things in her. How have you been able to strengthen your relationship with your, your daughters over time? And how much have you grown from the birth of your first daughter to now your, your nine-year-old who's in the house? I'd say the first thing to answer your first question is, uh, without a doubt, communication. I think communication between a parent and a child is essential for the growth and the connection and the bond. And the more a kid trusts you, um, because they're not going to always do the things that you tell them to do. They're not going to always listen to the things that you tell them. Most of the time, they're going to learn by experience, and then they'll find an appreciation for the things you tried to tell or instill in them. I'm never one of those parents that tell my kids, okay, I told you so. I'm more of, I'm here 
to let you know why I tried to tell you so. And I think that's a big difference. There should never be a fear factor, in my opinion, between children and parents. Because if children are afraid of you, if they're afraid of your reaction, if they're afraid of your judgment, they're going to try to hide a lot of things from you. And I don't know this from reading a book. I don't know this from hearsay. I know this from being a child myself. You know, I was fortunate to have good parents, both a good father and a good mother. And my mother in particular was one that talked to me about a lot of things and talked to me about a lot of things that as a child made me uncomfortable because I didn't want to talk about this with my mom. She's my mom. and I don't want to be talking about this stuff with my mother, but I am that way as a father now because my dad was more of the stern figure. My dad was more of the, you know, how to be a man type figure. But the combination of them both really, really molded me into who I am. But, you know, in today's society, a lot of people like that. A lot of people don't have both parents. And, you know, answering your next question, to be honest with you, man, I'm completely different now um, because I had my first daughter at 17. I think one of the things that allows me to be able to give a lot of the solid advice is because, I'm a living example of doing things that people tell you not to do and how it works out. Right. You know, so I can talk to a guy about the impact of teenage pregnancy, the impact that it has on you. But I can also talk about them to how you're not ready. You know, when I look at my oldest daughter right now, I think for the rest of my life, um, I'll be apologetic for the fact that I was never able to be there for her like I have her two sisters. Uh, because I was a child myself, and it's hard for a child to raise a child. But on the flip side of that, because I had that responsibility, I probably made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I probably did a lot of things that I would have done differently as a result of her. You know, whether it was getting in the cars with people that were drinking or whether it was making a decision to stop trying to play professional football and move on toward a career because I had a mouth to feed. So that was good and bad in it. But I think when you look at the fairness of a child, you're all they have. And I, I'm sure my daughter would tell you right now that she appreciates me. We've got a great relationship. We're really, really close. But I know as a father that I could have given her more. Mm -hmm. And her sisters benefited from that because where I went wrong the first go around, I was able to clean up the second go around. And the third go around was the final straw for me because I, I think I really got it right. You know, I was at a place in life where I was secure with my wife. I let go a lot of the running around, partying, hanging out that, you know, young adults do, not even teenagers do. And I committed myself to being a family man. And um, I saw the mistakes that my other daughters had made. And I knew how to go about doing things differently with this one than I did the other one. So when I look at the little nine-year-old right now, she's got it figured out in the sense of I can kind of give her the complete package so funny you asked me that because my wife and I were talking last night about a conversation her and my middle daughter had, um, my 18-year-old who just graduated from high school. And she said that my daughter told her that she's glad Brooklyn was born um, when she was born because my daughter had to see a lot of things between me and my wife that children may not need to see. You know, you want to think your parents got it together. You know, and we had her. We were still kids. You know, we were fresh out of college and, you know, we're getting together. We're trying to get a house and you're struggling to make ends meet, struggling, trying to make two financial situations come together when neither one of the financial situations are what normal people should make. <laughs> so there were a lot of struggles. And, you know, we've never necessarily been poor, or didn't have any food on the table, but it's not like it is now. 
And, you know, my daughter is stronger as a result of that. But even as a big sister, she's happy that our younger sister didn't have to endure some of that. All the moving around, trying to make an extra dollar, trying to be able to afford a nice enough place. You know, if we make decisions on a career right now, it's going to be because we want to, not because we have to. Stop doing what the young adults do, partying, going around, going out, having a good time. You committed to being more committed to being a father and husband. How did that? How does that come about? Because I think there are men and women all over the country of all ages who who struggle with that basic commitment of making a decision. I think the first thing you have to do is get your priorities in order, mm-hmm. and um, that's the key. When you can look into a woman's face or you can look into children's face and realize you let them down, um, you fail short, that strikes something in you if you're the right type of person. And more than anything, when you look at other people's situation and how they crumble, I think we all learn a lot from other people's experiences. And being in my position, especially being a coach that gets to travel around a lot, see a lot, I knew what I didn't want to be. I learned a lot in college as a student athlete about what I didn't want to be by the variety of guys that was in the locker room with me, and I always took that. So as I look at other people's and you get people that you interact with and you see the failed marriages and you see the kids getting dropped off, you know, with a separate set of parents or whatever, and you just want more out of that for yourself. But I guess I attribute it all to how fortunate I was to be able to have my mom and dad you know, in the same household together. I mean, I think they're on 49 years right now, and they're still a very, very solid couple. So I think my role model, without a doubt, of all the athletes, of all the coaches, of all the entertainers in the world, I would have to say my role model is my father, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So the older I grew, the more I started to really pay attention to the man that my father was. And I think I just made a conscious decision to try to mimic that as opposed to trying to mimic some of my other idols, so to speak. You know, I don't know Deion Sanders. I don't know Emmett Smith. I don't know the people that I looked up to when I was young. So I can't say I want to be like them. All I know is they played football. And at that point in time, I wanted to be a football player. But as you grow older, you start to want to mimic people that you know are the total package and that you can relate specific situations. And my best teaching in life came from growing up in that house with my mom and dad. So that's what I wanted my household to be like. Well, I think if you kind of relate it to the Bible a little bit, you know, it tells us as men of the household that we need to be leaders of the household. And I think to be a leader, there has to be a certain amount of honesty. You have to be assertive and you have to be willing to go to uncharted territories. You know, I have to be able to make my wife and kids understand that I'm taking you into uncharted territories, but we're going to be okay. And half of that is gaining the trust. And I realized by being with my wife for so long, one of the things I had to do and I have to do over and over is reestablish the trust. 
because her trusting me when we were dating at 20 years of age is completely different <laughs> than her trusting me now. But again, I think I can be honest with any young couple and tell them that. You know, I have my daughters and I tell them all the time for you to think that an 18 or 19 year old young man is going to be completely honest, completely faithful, completely focused on what he wants 20 or 30 years from now. That, that's not true. There's no way that a boy can think like a man because we are a product of our own experiences. And I think we have to make those commitments to be committed, but not necessarily being fully committed because commitment is far bigger than committing adultery or, you know, stepping out on your boyfriend or girlfriend. Commitment is everything I do in life is centered around my family. And I can't sit here and tell you at what point in my life I got to that because it wasn't in my 20s. Right. For me to sit here and say right now that my check is going to be direct deposit, I know for a fact and trust for a fact my wife is going to handle it the right way, and every day I get up to come to work, my only mission is to make sure that my family is okay. I have a line that I use in recruiting all the time to young men, and it's, it's very simple. It says, as a good man in life, the most important thing you're ever going to be as a husband and father. And the definition of a good man basically goes like this. You reach a point to where you take on a wife, you father children, and for the rest of your life, you're going to be making sacrifices, taking care of, and providing for those that you've taken on as a family. And if you're successful at being that husband and a father, you can only hope that you have something left to leave behind to them. That's the definition of a good man. So when you sum up your life, for most of your life as a good man, you're living for others. And you have to commit to that, or otherwise you're not going to be any good at it. Yeah. Service. I mean, that's, I mean I've, I've heard this whole conversation, your, your, your service to your family, your wife, your daughter, um, and, and to your head coach. Right. I think a lot of uh, coaches and fathers and mothers and parents, you know, don't understand how service is such a huge part. Thinking of others first before themselves right. um, in everything. I, I, I am, this is, Coach, this has been awesome. Man. I appreciate I, it. This has been absolutely awesome. Um, I want you guys to go ahead and, and, and pick up the book, Always Play to Win. It's at www.ap, the number two, w.com it is something that you have to and, and it's it's a great quick read and it's something you could really just put in your in your pocket and and open it up and just go ahead and, and pick up a couple quotes or a couple nuggets that you may need um, in your life coach we asked you know two questions um, two final questions on every person who's been on the contagious leadership experience the first one is when they make the coach DJ move <laughs> Uh, Kevin Hart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, Kevin Hart, we are calling you out. We need you to come out and play Coach DJ. And the last question, Coach, is, um, you know, we, we really believe to follow your passion, to, to follow and love your family. Um, you have to be in love with something in life. Like, of all the things, like, what are you in love with that gets you going, that gives you your juice every single day to do what you do? I am completely solely passionately in love with my family and that is my motivation for everything that I do I think knowing the fact 
that their smiles is dependent upon my sacrifice, my work ethic, my success is enough driving inspiration for me because I'm at a point in life right now where I don't need much else other than to know that they're happy. That's good. Coach, you have, uh, you have definitely changed my life in terms of just listening, in terms of, of leading, of teaching, of, of really going at a micro level in terms of helping other people. Um, and I know that you made an impact on, on a lot of people listening um, to the podcast. Guys, pick up his book. Um, reach out, e- out to him by email. He's doing some amazing things um, at Duke and for our football program. But, but most importantly, he's doing amazing things for his family, for society, and young people everywhere. Coach, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you. Appreciate you having me. Powerful, powerful things by Coach DJ, Derek Jones of Duke Football. You got to pick up his book. I know we talked about it several times. Always play to win. And he talked about how the book all came together. It really is an amazing story. I have a copy sitting on my desk, and every single day I open it up and I read an excerpt. It really fuels me. You know, I think as coaches, as people, we've got to have people or, or books or articles that give us energy because we are giving so much to the world. So pick up his book, Always Play to Win. Coach DJ, I appreciate you coming on the BCLE. Guys, I say this every single time, we are nothing without you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate all the feedback, the email, the love, everything. Continue to please Uh, downloading us on iTunes, on SoundCloud. Visit all the social media outlets. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, the Facebook, everything and anything because this movement is all predicated on you and your support and your love. Remember, all of you put on this earth to do something amazing. We are put on this earth to make an impact with people, and we have the power to continue to be contagious for the people around you. Thanks so much, guys. Till next time, we'll talk to you soon.